A special committee in Congress declared anti-Zionism to be anti-Semitism. Is that true? Stay tuned. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Since the Hamas brutality of October 7th, there's been a dramatic rise in the specter of anti-Semitism. Note I didn't say an actual rise in real anti-Semitism, just the specter, which alone has caused great soros, the Yiddish word for distress, among Jewish Americans. Also, there's been distress among members of Congress about this, who are exceedingly sensitive to any whiff of anti-Semitism, thanks in large part to the exceptional and unique power of the pro-Israel lobby, APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. Sure, there's always been some level of anti-Semitism in the Western world, but the alarmist reaction to any and all criticism of the intense collective punishment carried out against all Palestinians, including thousands of dead and severely injured children, that's being swept into the category of anti-Semitism just for speaking out against this policy. Is it accurate? Can speaking out against what many see as outrageous war crimes be fairly and accurately lumped under the category of anti-Semitism? Well, on December 5th, the presidents of Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, and MIT were called before the Republican-led House Committee on Education and the Workforce, condemning the alleged rise in anti-Semitic incidents, defending their administration's responses. The hearing was titled, Holding campus leaders accountable and confronting anti-Semitism. What a great title. How can you be against that committee's work? Was it really anti-Semitism those members of Congress wanted answers for? Or perhaps they themselves are ratcheting up anti-Semitism by intentionally conflating criticism of the Israeli state's war with genuine hatred for people of Jewish faith. We're going to talk about that today. Our guest is Louis Siegelbaum, whose essay in The Nation magazine is titled On Zionism and Anti-Semitism. Louis, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you for having me. Louis Siegelbaum is Jack and Margaret Sweet, Professor Emeritus of History at the Michigan State University, where he taught Russian and European history. Fascinating stuff. He's the author of books on Soviet labor and social history, as well as the award-winning Cars for Comrades. His memoir is titled Stuck on Communism, Memoir of a Russian Historian. He's edited two books and co-edited six others, most recently Empire and Belonging in the Eurasian Borderlands from 2019 with Krista Goff. He's also co-authored with James von Gelder in the prize-winning online source book, 17 Moments in Soviet History. And he's also a member of the Israel-Palestine Task Force of Historians for Peace and Democracy. And as someone on the show said a long time ago, it's important that we think with history. We rarely do that. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And one of the New York Times columnists that I can pretty much rely on is Charles Blow. I generally agree with what he has to say. You write about a conversation Blow initiated to address the issue with Jonathan Greenblatt of the Anti-Defamation League. And avoiding any nuances or considered details, Greenblatt reduced his answer to Blow's inquiry. Lewis, please tell us about that conversation between those two and its significance. 
Well, this was a conversation um, in the immediate aftermath of the March for Israel in Washington, uh, in which Greenblatt was one of the featured speakers. Greenblatt um, asserted, uh, as you say, uh, without uh, much uh, nuance, uh, that um, criticism of Israel uh, and anti-Zionism uh, was tantamount to anti-Semitism. Uh, and when uh, questioned by uh, Charles Blow, uh, Greenblatt elaborated uh, that um, it was the equivalent of, a say, of someone saying in 1963, um, and I'm quoting, I'm against the civil rights movement, but I'm also against racism. It doesn't, it doesn't make, make a lot of sense. Jonathan Greenblatt of the Anti-Defamation League. And it's interesting what the Anti-Defamation League, I mean, who could be for defamation? But their, their work these days is uh, rather, I mean, it's not APAC. It's in addition to APAC, but it's also very defensive of the state of Israel's policies as well. And why do you say Greenblatt's response is incredibly intolerant? Well, uh, what is anti-Zionism after all? It's a rejection of the claims Zionists have been making um, since the movement uh, was founded um, among European Jews that Jews' natural or rightful homeland was Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. Jews throughout the world have uh, had various reasons for opposing uh, this doctrine, right? Generally, they didn't deny the right or try to prevent fellow Jews from emigrating or the Zionist parlance making Aliyah to Israel. Uh -huh. But to assert that criticism of the Zionist project and what the Zionist uh, state of Israel uh, has, uh, has uh, done since 1948, since its founding, um, that, that, that to claim that that's by definition anti-Semitic is not only to disagree with non or anti-Zionist Jews, but it seems to me to deny them the right to their own opinion, which strikes me as incredibly intolerant. It seems like that would be the definition of intolerant. Um, today's Israel can do no wrong Zionists insist the disputed region, Palestine and Israel, has a long history of roots in it as, it, as, as a Jewish homeland. You say Greenblatt's easy summation exhibits a colossal ignorance of history. And boy, I, that bugs the heck out of me, being ignorant of history. Please clarify this, it was our land first argument. Well, uh, first of all, let's, let's deal with the first. <laughs> um, are, are we talking about Neolithic times? Uh, <laughs> Were, were, were there people living in, in Judah and, and, and Israel before there were Jews? Um, were there people living in these places who were not Jewish? Um, you know, who, who got there first? <laughs> Secondly, if we were, were to return to the way the world was in ancient times, uh, say when there is documented evidence of people uh, of, of the Jewish faith uh, living in that part of the world, um, well, we'd have to uh, have a lot of a lot of migration. Uh, 
right? Pe- people of European origin yeah. living in North and South America and South America, South Africa and Australia, New Zealand, they'd, they'd have to go back to Europe. And people of African origin, um, descending from slaves, uh, forcibly uh, brought to the Americas and elsewhere, they'd have to go back to Africa and so forth. Uh, does this make a lot of sense? Not to me. Not to um, me. Finally, yeah. when, when, when it comes down to it, you know, it was our land first. It's simply, let's face it, one of the weapons that Zionists used to legitimize their nationalist project to create a Jewish state. Zionism was a quintessentially nationalist movement, no different from other 19th century nationalist movements. And in the 20th century, after Britain had assumed control of what previously had been Ottoman Palestine, it had an anti-colonial dimension, right? to free Jews living in Palestine from British colonial control. Uh, This, incidentally, is why the Soviet Union supported independence for Israel, because it was thought to be a blow against British colonialism in what was emerging as the Cold War uh, between former World War II allies. Yeah, that uh, (laughs) is interesting what contexts can be created to justify this, that, or the other thing. It's This is not the only case for that, that's for sure. Exactly. And we know there are powerful forces at work in the United States seeking to erase all, any and all understanding of actual history and replace it with reassuring but highly inaccurate myth. We see this all the time. You mentioned two developments in post-Enlightenment Europe which are worthy of note. Talk about that. What are they? Um, well, I think I, I referred to um, the the emigration of large numbers of Jews um, from Europe to the Americas um, beginning in the late 19th century and um, expanding in the early 20th century. Um, uh, so that was one. And the other was the more or less simultaneous emergence of Jewish nationalism or modern Zionism Uh um, that specifically sought a Jewish national homeland. Both of these, um, I think, uh, fairly obviously, were responses to the persistence, indeed, one might argue, intensification of anti-Semitism in Europe Uh, And the failure of um, assimilationist uh, strategies uh, to to, to cope with that uh, development. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about Zionism and anti-Semitism. It's been very convenient for the state of Israel to conflate the two and make it so that any criticism is uh, of its policies in Gaza are anti-Semitic, you know, so that they would be exempt from criticism, unlike if other countries did what they're doing. Our guest today is Louis Siegelbaum, uh, Professor Emeritus of History at Michigan State University. And we mentioned the Enlightenment. I'm not sure when what the parameters are of that particular period. I should know. I'm embarrassed, but I don't. But you talk about there's the Jewish Enlightenment, too, the Haskalah, if I pronounce that right, which stressed mm-hmm. secular culture. Could that be said to have been anti-Semitic? 
<laughs> well, uh, certainly some traditionalist uh, religious leaders, uh, and 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 as well as those um, identifying with revivalist movements within Judaism, uh, such as uh, the Hasidim, uh, they tended to regard the Jewish Enlightenment, the Haskalah, as contrary to uh, what Judaism uh, should be and uh, the precepts of the religion, and and therefore uh, I suppose anti-Semitic. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, sacrilegious in the sense uh, that, um, for example, one of the leading lights of the of the Haskalah, Moses Mendelssohn, um, promoted the use of Hebrew uh, for secular literary purposes, uh, as opposed to uh, the, the 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 lingua franca among Eastern and Central European Jews, which was Yiddish. Right. Um, so. Um, you know, traditionally Hebrew was reserved for the sacred texts and oh. the exegesis of them, the Talmud and so forth. But part of the Haskalah was to uh, employ Hebrew for secular purposes, uh, for novels and fiction of all kinds and uh, literary expression. So this 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 was abhorrent to those who you know, claimed authority to preside over the, the, the sacred texts and their interpretations and so forth. Interesting, interesting. And the divisions have been going on a long period of time. And just from my historical uh, ignorance, when was the Enlightenment Europe? What, what period does that uh, bracket? Oh, uh, well, depending on where in Europe we're speaking of, uh, I, I would say uh, sometime in the early 18th century um, and probably most um, uh, flourishing in the, from the mid 18th century. So Voltaire and uh, Diderot and these others in France um, into the Scottish Enlightenment of the latter part of the 18th century. Um, yeah, and into the 19th, uh, and this would have been this exactly when the Haskalah uh, was taking place. Uh huh. And when uh, Jews and other people started moving around and, and traveling uh, the world to find uh, different places to live, as we have a right to do, as long as, well, in theory, you get along with other people. <laughs> and I do remember being told in my uh, Saturday school at, at my temple when I was a kid that uh, Israel is a land without people, and it's perfect for a people without land. That was a lie, <laughs> to put it mildly, unbelievable. And here we are paying the price. But this is, you know, this uh, moving around and some Jews moving to what's now Israel was, was part of the uh, the colonialist emigration, I suppose. And we had to talk about uh, uh, the British interest in all this. Well, as a matter of fact, let's do it now. The, the British, in the right after the First World War, the, the, uh, uh, the Brit Britain and France divided up the ter the former Ottoman ter territories and lands, and you know France got uh, Lebanon, and uh, Britain it used to be great. Britain uh, <laughs> uh, got uh, what is now Palestine and and Israel, and they had their own interests in it, and that was clearly 
uh, colonialist, for sure. Tell us about the important role uh, of British colonial machinations at the conclusion of the First World War. I know that's not your specialty, but what do you know about that? Uh, Well, uh, you know, those of us uh, of a certain age certainly will recall uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, yeah. uh, This this grand uh, uh, biopic. Um, Well, that was that figured in British colonial machinations. uh, This, uh, you know, handsome debonair uh, motorcycle driving uh, guy roaming around uh, uh, that part of the Middle East, in fact. Um, so this is all during the, the First World War, um, when uh, Britain and France uh, uh, were the uh, main allies uh, fighting, uh, along with R- Russia, as it happens, uh, uh, fighting against uh, the German and Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman right. empires. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, uh, th- more than three years into that war, in November 1917, uh, the British Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour, mm-hmm. um, issued a public statement, uh, which became known as the Balfour Declaration, right. um, that um, it, it said that the British government looks favorably upon the creation of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. Now, why did Balfour issue this statement at this particular time? Indeed, why? Yeah. Well, they're, they're three years into the war, um, and uh, this, this, the, the United States had yet to commit uh, troops to, to the war effort, um, having remained neutral up to, up to this point. Um, and, um, and in the meanwhile, uh, Russia was consumed by uh, the Bolshevik Revolution and was in the process of getting out of the, the war. And thus, the, 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 the Allies situation did not look all that promising. So this was an effort to uh, shore up uh, domestic support for the war effort, specifically among Britain's Jews, um, wh- who included... Um, uh, some very wealthy folks with uh, surnames such as Rothschild. Um, and so promising a homeland for the Jews, or at least indicating a favorable disposition towards that, um, the hope was that uh, increasing uh, investment in the war effort and publicizing among uh, Jews the uh, the Zionist project um, which let me add had had had, had not a long history. In right. fact, uh, let let me point out that Zionism really dates from uh, rather specific uh, specific uh, moment in 1897, uh, when uh, Theodor Herzl, uh, an Austro-Hungarian uh, Jew born in Budapest, uh, hosted a conference. Um, I think it was in, in, in Basel, Switzerland, um, for um, Jews uh, to declare the, the uh, aim of establishing a Jewish national homeland. Um, and um, and um, so, uh, you know, a little over 20 years or so, uh, uh, Zionism had existed um, up to this point, 1917. Mm. Anyway, um, uh, so this... This attempt to garner um, Jewish support um, 
after 1917, you know, was kind of walked back, after, especially after the end of the war, um, when, uh, there, first of all, there were others in the British Foreign Service who were rather more kindly disposed towards um, uh, the Arab, the indigenous Arab population of Palestine. Um, and so there was kind of waffling going on, yeah. uh, trying to limit the territorial extent of what would be uh, a future uh, state in in Palestine. Um, and so uh, essentially both both Zionist inclined Jews and um, and incidentally the the population of uh, British controlled Palestine um, circa 1920, the proportion of uh, the Jewish population was about 10 percent. Um, uh, thanks to assiduous efforts to organize uh, immigration to uh, to Palestine, it it rose somewhat in in the next uh, decade, um, maybe 20 percent by the end of the 1920s. Um, but yeah, so that's. That's that. That's the British mandate as granted by the League of Nations at the end of the First World War. And somehow I find it hard to believe that the British were doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. <laughs> <laughs> what was their their interest? I mean, and people, Zionists, and and people who are who don't really know the history uh, bristle whenever. I suggest that perhaps Zionism fits in part and parcel with European colonialism. And you know, what, what's your feeling about that? Well, uh, exactly. I mean, Zionism is is no <laughs> no better and no worse than other European uh, settler colonial projects. Um, uh, of course, it's folded into during these decades we, we were just referring to the British colonial project, uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, and, and sort of fed off it. And, um, in the 19, in the 1930s and into the forties, um, uh, turned against it. That is, uh, so, uh, there is this, uh, development, um, uh, of, uh, militant, armed militant, People generally refer to them as terrorist groups within the Zionist movement to hasten um, the independence of Israel. Um, and the British were um, reluctant uh, to, to grant that and um, uh, uh, survived uh, until 1948 as a, as a British mandate colony. 1948, a lot of people have this impression that it all started in 1948 with the uh, creation of the uh, State of Israel, but obviously it, it started well before that. And there's rarely, as I find you know, in history, specific moments that you can point to when it began, but a lot of it happened in the 19th century and with the uh, uh, declaration. Uh, so it's been going on for a, a long time. And you mentioned just violence, you know. Uh, I had a professor back in college, 
long time ago, who who said that uh, he defined politics as the economy of violence. Violence is part of it, oftentimes. So if you could talk about the role and methods of the Stern Gang and others when it comes to violence, which was essential to Israel's founding and about the many wars, many wars that have followed. What does that say about, there's a lot of questions in here, I suppose. What does it say about the stability and legitimacy of the newly imposed state that violence mm. was necessary? Mm. Um, well, the, the, this, uh, so the Stern Gang, um, the, 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 um, uh, the Hebrew is uh, Lehi. Uh, the Stern Gang, Lehi, and, and Irgun is the other one that's oh, yes. uh, uh, frequently uh, tied to it. Uh, the, these are, these are um, underground, militant, armed groups, uh, right-wing uh, generally in their political outlook, indeed even fascist inclined. Uh, there's a lot of evidence of uh, contacts with uh, Mussolini's Italy. Uh, uh, this is during during the, the Second World War, uh, when, of course, uh, they were on the other side from Britain, from colonial Britain. Um, and um, the, the, these groups undertook operations um, targeting uh, uh, Palestinians uh, who got in the way of, uh, of Jewish settlement um, uh, mm. to intimidate them, to drive them off uh, their lands, um, and uh, clear, clearing whole villages in some cases, mm. um, uh, uh, murdering uh, hundreds, if not thousands. Um, and as well, acts against the British, um, including the uh, very well-known uh, uh, Irgun uh, bombing of the British mandatory headquarters right. in uh, the King David Hotel in Jerusalem. Uh -huh. This was in, in, in July 1946. Uh, uh -huh. Nearly 100, 100 British uh, personnel were, were killed. Uh, yeah. Violence being essential to uh, political legitimacy, I suppose. You know, like police, for example, nowadays, they don't need to exercise their violence. They just need to be there and to have their legitimate use of violence recognized. And that keeps us all in line. Um, and in the early stages, I find this fascinating. In the early stages of the Third Reich, Hitler and the Nazis... I believe, wanted to send the Jews of Europe away, someplace else, just not in Germany and not in Western Europe, send them to a land of their own. Of course, that proved cumbersome and unrealistic. So we know what they did when that plan didn't work. What about the notion that Jews, no less than any other national group, deserve their own homeland? And what about the murkiness of what parameters can sufficiently define a distinct nation at all? After all, I guess that's two questions. Do they, do, do, do Jews, like any other national group, deserve their own homeland? And second, what, what, how can we define a distinct nation after all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I would say Jews deserve uh, their own homeland no less than anyone else deserves their own homeland. Um, their own state, uh, if you like, um, um, you know, just as just as uh, European um, 
migrants, uh, uh, immigrants to the to the 13 colonies deserved their own state if they desired it, um, which they did. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and got it in 1776. Um, the, the, the question, the, you know, for me, the, the, the problem, the, uh, the hidden uh, part of it is uh, at whose expense? Mm. Uh, in the case of the American colonists, right? It was uh, right. Native Americans, indigenous peoples who had inhabited these lands for what, thousands of years, um, and who uh, suffered immensely uh, as Europeans arrived and drew, drew them, threw them out, and you know drove them off their lands and. Um, eventually uh, restricted them to reservations and, right. and so forth and so on. The Israelis, uh, the, the, the Jewish immigrants to, uh, to Palestine, um, encountered uh, Muslim and Christian Pal- Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you might say it's the Israelis' misfortune that the Palestinians have been so numerous that it, it, it was unrealistic or impossible to restrict them to reservations yeah. uh, in marginal territories. But lo and behold, um, mm. that hasn't stopped uh, success of Israeli governments, and particularly the present one under Netanyahu, um, from imposing all kinds of uh, of restrictions on Palestinians, um, such as in the West Bank, right. uh, where there are two kinds of laws for two kinds of people, um, much more restrictive in the case of Palestinians. It reminds many people, I think rightly so, of uh, of what the uh, the Boers, mm-hmm. uh, speaking uh, uh, immigrants from largely the Netherlands. Um, did to the far more numerous uh, uh, indigenous Africans in South Africa. Um, that is the established uh, an apartheid uh, regime to cope with this sort of demographic imbalance. Mm. And what about the idea of, of a nation? I mean, I, I, it seems to me the United States, you know, there was that rather large war in the 1860s where you had the idea of what's a nation come to the fore. The southern mm. nation wanted to have its independence. Uh, the north didn't let them. Uh, and there are various groups across the world that uh, are they nations? I mean, how can how how do we define a distinct nation after all? I mean, there's a wonderful book by Colin Woodard called uh, "American Nations: The Eleven Nations of North America," and it was pretty pretty specific. I thought that there were a bunch of different nations within this country. So you've been working in the field of history for a while. What what parameters can sufficiently define a distinct nation after all? Huh. Yeah, uh, I think of all the questions you asked me so far, this is the most complicated one. Go ahead. Uh, well, people have different definitions of what is a nation, uh, what is a potential nation, uh, what is a legitimate and an illegitimate nation. Um, but I would say that it has to do with a, a feeling of, uh, of uh, to use an old expression from the French Revolution, fraternity. Uh, a sense of uh, commonality uh, among among people um, uh, who are uh, uh, willing to block together to achieve the specific aim of creating uh, a uh, a state in their name, 
so, so in, you know, an ethnic group can or doesn't necessarily have to be, but can be a nation uh, if it if it seeks to establish a, a political uh, entity in in its name. Well, certainly the Kurds are desirous of a separate nation state uh, between uh, what is it, uh, Iraq and Syria. Uh, Turkey. And Turkey. Oh, yes. <laughs> Good old Turkey. Um, and if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Professor Lewis Siegelman, who's written an article in The Nation magazine, which I recommend to everybody, The Nation magazine. The title is On Zionism and Anti-Semitism. There's a lot of confusion about that. We're trying to uh, shed some light on that. And Jews have been around my religion I'm assuming your religion, or at least how you were raised, have been around for thousands of years. Zionism, as you've described, is pretty recent. My question is, has Zionism always been thought of by Jews as fundamental to Judaism? Or has there been a more pervading sense of internationalism as being essential to Jewish identity? Yeah. Well, I would say that non-nationalism uh, rather than internationalism has been uh-huh. pervasive among, among Jews. That that does say Jews generally have um, attached uh, their loyalty to whatever state they have been living in, uh, e- even while practicing certain uh, traditions that uh, set them apart. Um, so, you know, in this country, um, we are just now celebrating Hanukkah, um, and in April or thereabouts, uh, Passover, mm-hmm. and there are other holidays, you know, high and not so high that Jews specifically, uh, specifically Jews celebrate as well as, uh, going to synagogue on, uh, Saturdays and so forth and so on that have distinguished Jews from non-Jews. Um, but um, uh, doesn't make don't make Jews any less American than uh, anyone else who uh, was born in or rece- has re- have received uh, citizenship in this uh, country. But I, I you you ask about internationalism. Well, this is one of the responses among European Jews to the nationalist inspired. Uh, anti-Semitism, as well as um, the more traditional religious-based persecution that Jews were subjected to in, you know, in the 19th century. So Marxist social democratic movements and political parties in the late 19th and early 20th centuries had a specifically internationalist outlook, and they attracted Jews from across the European continent. you know, one thinks of, well, Karl Marx himself, uh, incidentally, son of a convert to Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also, you know, the Polish-born, naturalized German Rosa Luxemburg. Ah, uh, yes. And the Ukrainian-born uh, Leon Trotsky. Uh, these are these are just a few of the, you know, many Jews who... Uh, affiliated themselves with or defined themselves as uh, as internationalist, uh, uh, communist, um, uh, political activists. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I may be the only person who considers himself a Luxembourgian. <laughs> I like. <laughs> I've never heard that phrase before, but I, I very much like what she has to say. And considering the the early days of the the twentieth century, the First World War, etc., you raise an interesting analogy. Israel as the Prussia of the Middle East, and people don't even know what Prussia was or, <laughs> frankly, still is. Please say more about Israel as the Prussia of the Middle East. Yeah. Well, I can't claim uh, to, to originate that term. It's oh, actually okay. a, a term that um, Isaac Deutscher um, a, applied. A Deutscher, who was one of those internationalist uh, Jews um, born in the Polish part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, described himself as a non-Jewish Jew. Um, in, in any case, um, we, and we can come back to that that term if you like. But yeah. Prussia, uh, Prussia was the the kingdom within the Germanies, uh, as they tended to be referred to in in the in the nineteenth century. Um, so so it's Prussia uh, under whose auspices German unification uh, was achieved, at least partly through conquest. Um, and Deutscher uses. Uh, this uh, this analogy um, to Israel um, because of uh, Prussia's uh, reputation of being a particularly sort of martial, mm -hmm. militar militarized uh, uh, country that uh, kingdom it was um, that um, you know was effective in uh, prosecuting wars against uh, neighbors to to uh, grab uh, other German-speaking parts of Central Europe to form, uh, to unify the Germanies into the, uh, the state of Germany that uh, was formed in 1870. So, um, uh, so the analogy was with, with Israel. Deutscher, incidentally, uh, uses this phrase in, in 1967 in wow. the immediate aftermath uh, of, of the Six-Day War. Um, and um, I think it's no accident that, you know, the, the sort of most charismatic figure to emerge out of this was was General Moshe Dayan, uh, the eye patch uh, yes. image of, of Dayan was, uh, you know, very uh, uh, ubiquitous uh, at that time. I can see how he'd fit right in with the Prussian culture. Yeah. <laughs> Quite frankly. And, you know, we know later on in the Second World War, there was that whole German notion of, I believe it's Lebensraum, living space. Well, right. you know, now I see uh, uh, the Israeli state as perhaps needing more, dare I say, living space. It's it's kind of spooky, I must say. So tell, tell us about another one of the Israeli founders, uh, Ben Gurion. How did he feel about treating Arabs as equal participatory uh, neighbors <laughs> and citizens? Yeah. Well, David Ben-Gurion, um, uh, Pol Polish-born as well, um, was um, uh, the first president of Israel uh, and uh, as such oversaw the expulsion of Palestinian Arabs uh, from their homes in, uh, among other places, Jerusalem. Um, and... Um, you know, this is this is part of the the Nakba, the uh, the expulsion, yes. the, the, the the horrors um, uh, associated with the Arab-Israeli War of 1947-48 um, that um, Israel 
proved uh, victorious in and that um, led to the, uh, the independence of Israel. And Ben-Gurion uh, remained uh, president, uh, gosh, I'm not too... I don't remember exactly until when, but sometime in the in the in the in the nineteen sixties, um, and um, uh, you know, is often referred to as the father or founder of Israel. Uh huh. So, how did he feel about uh, treating Arabs as equal participatory citizens or neighbors? Uh, well, Ben Gurion was, uh, you know, a pretty good diplomat in the sense that, uh, you know, if the occasion uh, warranted it, he could he could come up with uh, with nice sounding phrases about um, equal rights and citizenship for both uh, Jews and non-Jews, so long as uh, Israel remained a Jewish state, um, um, you know. But in others, um, uh, he was. Uh, in in some in some ways, uh, you know, when when Netanyahu invokes Ben Gurion, um, you know, he's he's legitimate in doing so. Mm. Uh, and I, I can only speak for myself on this one. I, I take my Jewishness seriously, and I'm proud of our record of on issues of justice and equality. Our role, for example, in the uh, civil rights movement and many, many political, social, cultural movements uh, over the many decades, fighting racism and unjust wars has been part of what I consider my Jewish identity. Yeah, I'm sure you're not surprised that in spite of that, that I have actually been called a self-hating Jew. What's going on that exacerbates this nonsense? <laughs> So this is uh, people who uh, disagree, probably violently so, um, with uh, with your views, um, uh, who set themselves up as the arbiters of you know the Jewish self, right, and 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 have decided uh, with what authority or legitimacy one wonders to, uh, to th that there is only one standard of of who who is this self mm, mm. Uh, and 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 uh, that they get to define it this is not i would uh, argue in the tradition of of uh, jewish culture um, on on the contrary um, there's that old jewish joke about uh, if you want three opinions ask two jews right <laughs> um, you know disagreement and and um, uh, you know dissent and uh, questioning, and uh, you know the, the, the these are these are uh, practices that um, are uh, frequent in and, and endemic, one might say, to to Jewish culture. Absolutely, and questioning it and dissecting the texts. Uh, there and there's so many different uh, versions of Judaism. It's I remember as a kid, I, I went to a reform temple, and I uh, there was a, in Brookline, Mass, uh, where it was. I, I went into a an Orthodox temple, kind of scary, quite frankly. I was like, "What religion is this?" But it still considered themselves uh, Jewish, and you know, there's just a huge variety among Judaism. And for those people to simplify it and call me a self-hating Jew, yeah, that bugs me. I have to say, it does bug me. I mean, how how dare they? But uh, it's, it's going on. And it's curious these days, very recently, the House of Representatives in Washington seem to achieve 
a summit of cynical grandstanding with a debate over House Resolution 894. House Resolution 894. That's a resolution proclaiming that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Many Orthodox Jews and secular dissenters remain opposed to Zionism. Now, of course, in the uh, House of uh, Representatives, anyone voting no on this seemingly, you know, uh, easy uh, resolution is risks being branded an anti-Semite. I mean, you can imagine how, you know, nobody wants to be seen as an anti-Semite except, well, <laughs> very few people want to be seen as an anti-Semite, and especially people who are always, always running for re-election. Uh, they're, you know, it, it's about money, and they'll take money from whatever they can get. But the resolution passed by 311 to 14 margin with 92 representatives voting present. It has the effect of making people feel unsafe if they say they oppose Israel's war crimes in Gaza. I want to say that again. This bill, in my opinion, has the effect of making people feel unsafe if they say they oppose Israel's war crimes in Gaza. Do you think that the intentional, intentional conflating of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism will actually fan the flames of the anti-Semitism it's, it purports to be against? Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do, definitely. Um, I, I, it obscures what, probably intentionally, it obscures genuine anti-Semitism. That's to say that the, the discrimination against and persecution of Jews simply because of their their difference or their, their difference of appearance or religious practice and so forth. And it serves as, a, as you were just describing, a weapon against criticism of Israel's excessive use of force. Um, which many have described as ethnic cleansing or even genocide. Um, you know, eighty-five uh, percent of the population of Gaza now displaced. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, one point nine million people um, in a in a in a relatively small uh, territory. Yeah, uh, this uh, this is. Uh, this is really nefarious. This uh, this use of uh, the, the label of anti-Semitism, and I I know you know throughout the world there is not surprisingly a lot of sympathy for the Palestinians, and if people across the world see what the Israeli state is doing to all those Palestinians and how incredibly unjust it is, and they say, well, that's all Jews. Then you know if they're mm. angry at the state of Israel, mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't exactly uh, tamp down anti-Semitism if they specifically, intentionally conflate the two. Exactly. And genuine anti-Semites thrive on oversimplification. You know, a lumping together of all Jews and having a stereotype of all Jews. What's what's wrong with that? Huh. Well, oversimplification. Uh, of of anything right. is, is dangerous. Stereotyping, objectifying, degrading, dehumanizing. You know, we talked about the richness of difference and dispute and so forth before. Uh, Jews are as varied as any other ethno-religious group. Uh, maybe you know, maybe more so given their extensive right. geographic uh, uh, 
spread uh, throughout uh, throughout the world. Um, and, uh, you know, to to uh, lump them all together as if they were marching lockstep is, yeah. uh, uh, is, a, is a crime. Yeah, I, I do think that those people who call me and other people a self-hating Jew, they can't imagine that we are not marching in lockstep. I have images of uh, various troops that march in lockstep in the past, yes. and I don't want yes. to be anything like that. No, yes. dissent. I mean, there have been a lot of Jews throughout the years in the United States. An old friend of mine, Abby Hoffman, for example, was a real dissenter, uh, came from a Jewish background. And dissent is part of who we are, and I, I consider defense, dissent to be a very high form of, of actual patriotism. It's not nationalism. It's patriotism. There's a big difference, and I urge any listener to, to look it up. People do confuse the two terms. But, well, uh, aside from the questionable morality of the Israeli massive collective punishment for October 7th, which has caused the death of thousands of Palestinian children, putting that concern about morality aside, what about strategically, just strategically? Your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I, I, I entirely agree with you that it it, uh, it exacerbates hostility, uh, resentment. Uh, uh, so it, it, in all likelihood, will only expand and, and uh, make make Hamas uh, an attractive alternative yes. uh, for 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 desperate, increasingly desperate Palestinians. What 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 is the what is the objective here? Is it is it to is it to as Netanyahu and other, and others claim to eliminate Hamas as a uh, as a movement as a as a political or military force, or is it to eliminate Palestinians? Yeah, yeah. As, it's not as, earning Israel any friends anywhere. Well, as Rocky used to say to Bullwinkle, that trick never works. It just <laughs> great cultural history here. Uh, that uh, you know, how could these children, thousands and thousands of children who are who are scared, who have lost their brothers and sisters, how can they not be incredibly angry and not become uh, more terrorists in the future? I just strategically, I just think it's. It's it's really uh, not a particularly bright. Uh, yeah, and so l let me just add that sure. you know uh, one one reads in the American press uh, quite extensively or sees on TV uh, the Israeli reaction to October seventh, right? Horror, you know, anger, uh, resentment, uh, understandable. Yeah. Right. Sure. These these were horrible things that uh, that happened uh, that Hamas uh, uh, did. Um, well, if you m multiply that by you know roughly the difference between the what is it uh, twelve hundred Israelis who were right. uh, uh, who are thought to have been killed on October seventh um, with the um, uh, Fifteen thousand, and now and counting uh, Gazans who have been killed. Not to mention the hundreds on the West Bank, at the hands of Israeli settlement settlers. Well, if you if you multiply the anger and resentment uh, accordingly, um, you have some sense of of how Palestinians are are feeling towards towards Israel. 
Yeah, strategically, uh, Lloyd Austin was saying something about they might win tactically, but strategically, mm, it's going to be a loss. Yeah. Now, in terms of real anti-Semitism, evangelicals are some of the most fervent advocates of the state of Israel. They're like, rah, rah, Israel. Israel can do no wrong. Uh, but And far rights Republicans are not anti-anti-Semitic. They are not anti-anti-Semitic. In fact, many of them are anti-Semitic. We've seen examples of this. Charlottesville, for example. They hold more traditional liberal Jews in contempt. They ally with, uh, you know, far-right, uh, uh, pro-Israel Zionists. So talk about this aspect, please, about the far-right Republicans as being the real anti-Semites who, who are totally in support of the state of Israel. Yeah, I, I've always had a hard time getting my, my head around this one. <laughs> but uh, so, the, I mean, there is this element in uh, a certain evangelical version of Christian theology that says that the more Jews assemble in Israel, the more intense the opposition to their presence and the closer, therefore, we get to the supposed end times mm -hmm. when, when Jesus will return to the earth and uh, there will be a final bloody battle at Armageddon and Jesus uh, will rule the world uh, from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. I mean, oh. even, even as I say this, I, I'm, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe these words are coming. But th this is the scenario. Uh, War is not something to be avoided, but something that's inevitable. Indeed, you know, uh, God uh, determined, and um, and therefore, um, go Israel. Right, and the rapture. They actually, they actually believe this stuff. And, yeah, and you know, Israel is the place for that, and they want to bring it on. And uh, you know, we've seen examples of them, the far-right people, saying that, uh, you know, Jews will not replace us, for example. That's anti-Semitism. That is anti-Semitism. And they, uh, you know, embrace it, for sure. Final question, uh, Louis Siegelbaum. Uh, how fundamental is anti-Zionism to Judaism? How do you answer it? Yeah, um, the survival of Jews uh, as people and Judaism as a, as we've described it, rich tradition that dates back thousands of years, depends on diversity of opinion, of practices, of debate, of emotional expression, of thought, um, which is what sustains human life or humanity. So the answer to how fundamental is anti-Zionism to Judaism is it's absolutely essential. I, I think it is as well. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and there's a lot to clarify out there in the real world, and I really appreciate that. If people, I, I encourage, uh, well, how can people follow your work? I mean, obviously you wrote this article on Zionism and anti-Semitism in the nation. Are there other things you can suggest on that Internet thing? Um, well, uh, there is the, uh, the task force that, uh, I belong to that, um, oh, yes. uh, right. Is, uh, engaged in things like, um, 
uh, drafting a template letter to be used by people wherever they are in the United States to uh, urge their Congress people to um, insist on the uh, ceasefire resolution that was introduced by uh, Representative Cory Bush uh, from uh-huh. Missouri um, that uh, has garnered increasing support. I think we're now up to 50 uh, people in Congress um, supporting it. And, uh, you know, with enough with enough publicity about what's been going on, um, that that will increase. Um, so uh, you can contact uh, HPAD is the acronym uh, online and um, get access to that uh, that template. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that uh, for your being on today. And uh, let's see if we can uh, attack real anti-Semitism and enable criticism to be okay and and not be a you know something that has to be banned from campuses that's uh, scary stuff to crack down on free speech we don't even have time for that but that's a significant aspect of it clamping down on free speech that uh, you know and, and it's not uh, easy comforting speech that the founders of this country sought to protect they sought to protect well maybe offensive speech but uh it's not offensive to me to criticize what's going on in Israel. I think it's exceedingly important to keep on doing that. Thank you so much for being with us, Louis Siegelman. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.